before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. My guest in this episode of the Grant Williams podcast is Tian Yang of Variant Perception. Variant Perception is an extremely highly respected independent research provider based in London with a stellar pedigree. These guys have been early calling many of the shifting dynamics surrounding inflation and central bank about turns and their work is always well researched and superbly communicated. In this conversation, Tian and I discuss how to think about recessions, what variants proprietary indicators are suggesting, and we flesh out trade ideas in US and Japanese government bonds. We discuss Brazil, US tech, the changing face of buy the dip, and much, much more. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tian Yang. Well, Tian, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Good to see you. It's been, uh, it's been quite a while. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to see you. Well, we've, we've kind of put this off uh, a number of times, down to me, not you. That's been totally my fault every time. So I'm really glad we finally got a chance to do this. It's uh, such an amazing world to be staring at right now. And uh, you know, the work you guys do at Variant Perception has always been just top class for me. So I'm, I'm delighted to get a chance to actually talk to you about what your research is telling you and you know, help people understand how you reach the decisions you reach and how your signals work because they've been incredibly prescient in the last couple of years in terms of picking turning points and identifying cycles. So I think what I'd love to kick off with is to talk about the R word. You know, recession is something that's on everybody's mind at the moment. There are a lot of people that say there's going to be a global recession, but not a US recession. There are people that say the US is going to be caught up in it. So what I'd love to get a sense from is you is, is how you guys think about recessions and how investors should think about them. Um, yeah, I mean, that's clearly something that's very top of mind, given the, you know, the inversion of the yield curve to stands kind of a, a while back. So um, what, what I would say is when we think about recessions, we probably need to get away from this framework of are we in recession or not? Because, you know, eventually we are going to be in recession, right? It's right. unnecessarily actionable to be, you know, we think we're going to be in recession in two years time. So what do you do today? So I think our framework is very much about trying to make it actionable. And making actionable is about dialing down the time horizon which which you look forward. So our recession signal generally works over the next three to four months, but it tends to be you know pretty accurate in flagging the, the start of recessions. And I think that the secret source is really to think about recessions as regime shifts rather than model it just as a normal cycle. I think we're kind of trained too much to think in terms of you know quadrant approaches or business cycles where you know, there's this impression that the economy is speeding up and it slows down and you go into recession like is this very smooth, you know, process and you're into, into these kind of different quadrants. Well, I think if you observe the data, generally recessions are, you know, generally pretty big zero one events, right? You just go along and suddenly they happen. So you kind of need to model it as such. So, you know, there's a couple of ways we do that. One is to think about recessions as when you get hard economic data and soft financial market data, both being stressed at the same time. So that's typically, you know, that's very much like a, a regime shift where you get positive feedback loops. Right. So say the economy slows down, earnings slows down, causes credit spreads to widen, which then in turn stresses our company balance sheet. So earnings, you know, deteriorate some more. And I think those are the, the, the situations where you really care about whether, you know, we're going to recession or not, because those are the situations where you get the cascade 
falls in equity markets, right? Those are times where we're down 15%, but you shouldn't be buying the dip because there's another 20% to come. Whereas if you don't get that regime shift and you're down 15%, then arguably you should be looking more you know, where to buy the dip. Um, so, so that's, in, in, you know, very broadly speaking, you know, how, how we try and think about recessions. Um, the, the other key point I think to make is we know that, you know, the old joke is that, you know, financial markets economists are predicting you know, 10 of the last five recessions, right? And, and that's a, you know, a common trope against, you know, why bother even predicting? And, you know, I, I think that's fair enough. But a lot of that comes from, I think, a lack of breadth of inputs. So generally, a lot of things are necessary but not sufficient conditions for recession. So, you know, a yield curve inversion is a good example. Or, you know, what's happened this year, say when oil prices surge, that these things have been observed a lot going into recession, but they don't necessarily always lead to recession. And the key is to actually capture all of these different um, indicators and capture the breadth of them and then essentially merge them into a regime shift model. So, that, you know, we do kind of market switching and these kind of, you know, these obviously very fancy words for kind of regime shift. But in, in practice, we're, what we're essentially doing is saying, you know, there's various signs that have happened that typically are very predictive recessions. Let's put them all together and see if it predicts regime change or not. And, and that's how we go about it. So, you know, as of today, we still don't see an imminent U.S. recession. And so that obviously, you know, tilts our mindset a little bit in terms of potentially where we want to buy dips versus, you know, getting too, too bearish. Well, it's interesting because... Um you know, this idea that we're not going to see a recession on the one hand is good news, but on the other hand, it probably means that the US central bank is going to be forced to hike more because at the moment, there are only two things that can really stop them hiking, given how hawkish they've come out and deliberately been. One is a recession and two is a massive capitulation in risk assets. And obviously, they're trying to get away from that idea of the Fed put and the idea that they're always going to be there. And they've, they're very actively try to convince markets that they're serious this time and they will. So where does that recession signal for you leave us in terms of Fed policy? Yeah, no, I think you're 100% right. Um, it's not even necessary recessions. If you look at a lot of the the economic data, there's, there's very little room for them to be dovish. If you look at the labor market, we've recovered you know, the pandemic job losses, even on their own core PCE trend lines. Again, they've hit kind of the long-term 2% now because they've caught it all up. So you know, even within the frameworks they've laid out, there's basically no room to be um, dovish. So I would say, you know, it's it's probably not that different this cycle versus historical cycles we've looked at for the Fed. Typically, what what tends to happen is um, the Fed will guide the market into the hike, at, le at least in the transparent era. So then the market becomes somewhat fairly uh, priced at the front end on the first hike. But then the market historically is quite bad at pricing the magnitude of eventual hikes, right? So you end up with this buy the rumor, sell the fact on the initial Fed hike, and then you kind of trend sideways for a bit. But eventually the Fed has a tendency to hike more than everyone expects because actually usually you, you take policy into kind of um, um, basically more hawkish than neutral, right? You take it into actual contraction territory eventually. So I think you know that's kind of almost a setup today, right? Where the Fed's done a great job of guiding the markets to what they want. And, we, and we've seen when the market doesn't respond the way Powell wants, you'll come out the day after, right, or, or the, on the Monday next week, say March, and be like, no, 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 you guys, the market's got it wrong. We're, we're hawkish. So you can see they've done a good job of trying to guide. Um, and so the market might seem fairly priced for now, but ultimately they will probably need to get to more than, um, you know, more than neutral, right? So I think it's, it's a case of managing that transition because it's not going to be instant. So yeah, I, th I think for now it's still you know pretty much full hawkish mode. We'll, we'll we'll need to see headline inflation actually peak and roll over. On most of our models, we think March April is actually the peak. 
Um, however, you're only going to really see that in um, kind of May, June. So that might be a, a more of a cyclical point in which to potentially look at adding duration. Um, but again, the, the bigger context here is that, well, let's see where they get to, right? Even if they add to 50 bips, 50 bips, it's going to be a while before they get to neutral. And so this expectation that are going to stop before neutral in the face of inflation is probably a, a bit too optimistic, I would say. What did you make of the action last week after we had the 50 basis point hike, then we had the press conference, we had the 75 basis point off the table, the market rallies a thousand points. And then since then, it's been carnage. I mean, everywhere you look in markets, yeah. it's, been, it's been pretty chaotic. What, what did you guys make of that reaction? Yeah, I mean, our crystal ball on that has been a little bit murky, I think. Uh, go, going into it, we did get quite a few um, kind of fairly good tactical buy signals going off um, on, the, on the initial kind of Friday crash. So these are typically good warning signs for the potential for a squeeze. And obviously, we saw the squeeze on the day. But I think maybe the, the bigger story here is ultimately that we remain in a terrible liquidity regime, right? And we have been for pretty much this year and even in the back in the last year. So, you know, the current outlook is very, well, not even outlook, the environment's been one where the traditional indicators of cyclical liquidity has been extremely bad for extended period, but they've been offset by all these pandemic one-offs, right? We know consumer excess savings. We know there's like the, you know, bull perfect inventory cycle. So it's been about managing that interplay um, but as you know, for the kind of slightly frothier, higher valued assets, arguably, you know, the liquidity environment is so bad that the default should be that it's going down, that people should be selling. And it's only it's, and it's only the, the squeezes that are count counter trends. So that that's probably still the context in which uh, we will think about it, although clearly the magnitude of it is pretty extreme, right? And then it's yeah. quite surprising if you look at the levels, because typically these price actions will be indicative of quite a lot of, say, negative gamma amongst dealers. So, you know, the, you get to a certain level. But if you look at proxies, the negative gamma is probably more like down here, S&P 4000 range, right? So, so yeah, um, yeah I, I don't have a bad answer to that. But I think um, it, it does fit with the general kind of, um, you know, very bad liquidity environment we're in. Well, you, you brought up liquidity a couple of times there. So let's talk about that for a moment, because... Liquidity is always there and always has been there. And sometimes it's been abundant, sometimes it's been tight. But until these last couple of decades where the central banks have resorted to liquidity as the solution to every problem that they've previously created, it wasn't that liquidity wasn't around. It just it ebbed and flowed naturally without any outside agencies injecting it to kind of surplus amounts. So so how do you guys define liquidity? And how how is that definition come to change over the years to try and take into account this kind of abnormal liquidity that the market has now come to almost rely on? Yeah, no, I think that, that's a great question. And clearly, it's something very top of mind. You know, liquidity means something different to everyone, it seems. Um, yeah. what, what I would say is, for us, our, as much as it may be surprising, our definition of liquidity has not changed for the history of, of VP. Right? At this point, we've been going 12, 13 years, and it has worked for that whole period, in my mind. So, you know, it's about what we would call excess liquidity, right? So most measures of liquidity, right. I think um, you hear in the market, they, they tend to be coincident with price moves rather than leading, right? So, you, you know, you've all heard of stuff like, you know, long growth, right, M2 to GDP, you know, that's the financial conditions indices from Goldman, Morgan Stanley, and so forth. But most of these, if you look at the turning points, they basically line up with S&P. So they're, they're no different to telling you, okay, S&P is down uh, in a way. I think the only thing we found that consistently gives you a very good lead and these inherently contrary indicators is um, what we call excess liquidity, which is essentially real M1 growth globally minus economic growth. So, th so the idea okay. is that money is basically being created from thin air by all the central banks, as you say, and then that liquidity can be used either by the real economy 
or for inflation. And then whatever is left over tends to be what supports asset prices. And this has been a very consistent pattern we've, we've um, observed over cycles. And so what's, what's really nice about this indicator is that it's, you know, it's, it's very helpful to help you be contrarian at the right spots, right? Because by definition, at the bottom of the cycle, inflation will be bad, growth will be bad, but central banks will probably, probably would have been easing for a while. And once that easing gets traction and one growth picks up, so you have huge amounts of excess liquidity at the bottom of the cycle. Similarly, coming into this year, you have kind of the exact opposites, right? Central banks are tightening, inflation is eating up a lot of the excess liquidity, so is economic growth. And so, you know, I think that's a very, very good definition that served this very well in terms of excess liquidity. What we can then do is essentially complement it with kind of a slightly faster moving second derivative read. And that's what we call our business cycle finance index. But it's essentially just a, a account of G20 central banking policy, right? So basically, what percentage yeah. of G20 central banks are tightening or, or, or um, easing? And so when you put the two together, alongside all the other measures of um, liquidity, and you run kind of dimension reduction analysis or PCA over the history of data, what we found is that these two inputs tend to be most consistent over time. Right. Once you have, once you capture this, this is better than tracking 10 year yields. This is better than tracking real yields. This right. is better than to the GDP. It's much more persistent. So I think that's really what we've, what we've relied on. And it's obviously a lot of very fundamental inputs. Um, and then what we can then complement it with a little bit in terms of market inputs is, you know, we'll also look at yield curves and, and high yield credit spreads. So essentially between yield curve credit spreads, excess liquidity and, and G20 policy diffusion, that gives you a pretty holistic, uh, picture of liquidity that I think, um, tends to provide kind of a very good guide for asset prices. So the final, the final thing I was saying is that, obviously, it's not necessarily going to work all the time, but if you look at periods when it doesn't work, the one period did not work was 2004 to 2006. But that was a period when essentially, even though liquidity was very tight, you basically had a, you know the kind of China into WTO, the major China reflation coming, and that was also the last kind of major commodity super cycle. So you had a huge recycling of petrodollars and surpluses back into kind of U.S. assets. So, you know, actually coming into this year, we thought there might be a chance we get a repeat, right? Because obviously we have our whole commodity super cycle thesis, you know, from back in 2020 is still going, and we thought China re would reflate. But clearly, you know, as the kind of 2022 started to to wear on, especially with the kind of you know Russia-Ukraine war, right? Suddenly we're like, ah, uh, maybe commodity exporters are not going to recycle their surpluses back into the US anymore. Right. And obviously we've seen China with zero COVID, they're not really reflating. Even though they say they're reflating, they're not. Yeah. So without that, you would think that yeah, this very bad excess liquidity is really going to start to bite. And obviously we've kind of seen that in a lot of the uh, you know, the kind of previous best performers. I'm interested in that G20 diffusion index. That's fascinating. How have you seen that shift as we've moved from a period where central bank policy, whether overtly or not, has been pretty highly coordinated? And we now seem to be reaching the kind of every man for himself phase where everyone's suddenly got their own version of the inflation bugbear to deal with and they're having to deal with it in their own way. How have you seen that change your readings? Well, I mean, it's still, it's show, it's still showing a pickup in hawkishness. So essentially in 2021, you started with the emerging market central banks actually front running, right? They're the ones who kind of bore the initial brunt of the global inflation. And they didn't have the luxury of having the policy credibility the Fed had. So they had to start reacting to headline inflation. They had to start hiking. And obviously, as the year wore on, you started to see kind of developed central banks, you know, Bank of Canada, Bank of England, start, you know, uh, you know New Zealand, so for RBA, right? Starting to kind of also talk more hawkishly. And then finally, by the end of the year, you have the Fed kind of starting to move. 
Um, and obviously, when, once the Fed goes hawkish, it starts dragging up the real laggards like the ECB um, and the BOJ. So right now, you are kind of getting to peak um, peak diffusion in terms of everyone that can turn hawkish is pretty much turn hawkish. But is it going to turn? Well, at least right now, money markets don't think so, right? Because you can also get like a, an even earlier read by looking at what, what were all the money markets pricing uh, across the G20 as well. Again, the money market pricing is still for hikes to continue. So you know, as of right now, there's probably not that many signs of relief. Um, so it looks like everything comes back to kind of policy credibility, you know, controlling inflation expectations, which means they have to engineer kind of a genuine falling headline inflation, right? So um, yeah, as of right now, it still feels like the, the hiking and the whole kitchens will, will persist. I think in order to see a shift, we definitely need to see headline inflation roll over as, as kind of the initial first condition. Um, but, you know, obviously we, we, we still don't see that. So, so you know, that, that's where I'm saying. Given how well, as you say, they've, they've set the market up to expect these hikes, do you think when we see inflation roll over, they'll continue to hike just to try and, if anything, buy themselves some time and room for the inevitable point in time where they have to start easing it? So, you know, some people are already predicting that they'll be easing again before the end of this year. You know, I don't know that I, I necessarily agree with that. But as you say, they have done a good job of convincing people they're serious. And, you know, almost it would be counterproductive for them to not then follow through with that and and to and to back off too early. How do you think that plays out? Yeah, I think I'm probably more in in, uh, in agreement with you that, you know, I think policy credibility matters a lot. So we've constructed various um, kind of common inflation expectation indices just to, you know, it basically tracks consumer surveys, business surveys, as well as um, kind of market implied inflation, right? And most of these are still at, multi-year, if not multi-decade highs across many of the major economies. So I think we're a little bit at the point where policy credibility really matters. Um, and as I say, on the labor market, there's basically no excuse for them not to kind of double down policy credibility, given how tight the labor markets are. So yeah, it seems like they need to keep going. They at least need to get to neutral. And, and obviously, the, the concern is they keep revising up what they think the neutral rate is. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, it would be a really big on goal if, if they suddenly backed off. But you know what? That that's pretty easy way to hedge, right? So you know, I think, you know, depending on obviously this is quite exotic, but you know, if you do two two cents or yield curve caps, these are you know right now pretty pretty cheap because the forwards are very inverted, so they give you very asymmetric kind of payoffs if the Fed does air air dovishly and then loses policy credibility. But for the, for the most part, it seems like you know the the power the power Feds is generally quite pragmatic, right? If you look at the history, uh, you know, I, I know. Uh, you know, I, you know, our friend uh, Chris Wood likes to refer to him as a, you know, pivot pal. From, but you know, another way to, to uh, think about it is he's very pragmatic, right? He has a good sense of which way the political leanings are, which way they need to shift. So, you know, when he came in, people thought he was fairly hawkish. When it was the Trump White House in eighteen, you know, he, he realized he needed to pivot dovishly, and now he realizes Biden's concerned about inflation going to the midterms with Dems. He needs to tell hawkish. So. Yeah, it, it does seem like unless we get something really dramatic, as you say, you know, recession, major, you know, crash, these kind of things. Yeah, I, I don't see why they would feel the need to back off because the political winds have changed as well. Yeah, you talk about that twos, tens yield curve cap. But one of the other things I know you guys have been uh, leaning towards is going short JGBs. And this is something that, you know, for the longest time, this has been the widow maker trade for, I mean, decades now. And it's very interesting that in the last couple of months particularly, we've seen this kind of move in the yen, which we haven't seen before, against the backdrop of Corona once again pledging 
to stand unlimited bid at the 10-year point in the curve. And he's done this before and it didn't affect the currency. This time it has. So what's your thinking with regards to why that dynamic has changed and why now might be the time when a short JGB position might finally do what it should have done <laughs> at every, every point in the last 20-odd years? Yeah. I mean, that is a, a literal widow maker, right? Like it's, right. it's how survive everyone. Yeah, so... You know, I, I think the one thing that's different is that the the, con- the global context for that trade has changed. At no point in the last 20 years did we have this global synchronized inflation as well as central bank kind of shift towards hawkishness. So the BOJ does look increasing out of step. If you just look at where even where Japanese 10-year break-even trade, right, they've all been dragged up with, um, you know, US and Euro 10, 10 years. So I, I feel like this is one of those more classic asymmetric kind of old school macro type trades, right? You have like something that's fixed um, and then things move around it and it potentially makes the fixed thing unsustainable, right? This is, you know, the Minsky kind of um, stability begets its own stability. So, you know, the longer you hold something stable, then when it breaks, um, you know, that that's, when, that's where, when all the volatility kicks off. So, you know, right now, when you have such a big devaluation in the yen, that's going to mechanically start feeding through into inflation um, in Japan because obviously they import a lot of... Um, energy or or import just lots of things, right? So that's a mechanical feed-through. If you look at the tank and service or inflation, you know, a lot of the diffusion things are back to the 70s highs, right, in terms of businesses. So again, that's pretty unprecedented. And the BOJ themselves have the history of flip-flopping, right? Like, you know, something I just remember extremely well, and I was just was when when Kuroda denied that he was going to widen the yield curve band, like in 21. And then literally a week later, they did it. And then it it was just, yeah. yeah. It was literally really like, so, you know, it makes me think, well, Corroda is going to be gone by 2023. They're, they're kind of rotating in some of the more hawkish, what people are perceived as more hawkish in July anyway. So it could be something that shifts, um, shifts a bit. So, yeah, it just seems it's more the fact that, again, if we, if we use that whole, like, you know, someone comes down from Mars, you know, and they don't know anything, they just look at what's going on. Does this make sense? And then that peg effectively, right, the, 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 the yield curve cap. At 25 bits, it just looks increasing out of step with everything else that's going on. So, you know, the, the symmetry seems very good. Um, you know, because obviously, if the pad goes, the vol's really going to pick up. So, if you can do it via swap options, you, you kind of have multiple ways to win. It has really a lot of convexity and, and it's pretty liquid market, right? So, you can get quite long data. So, you get a lot of duration, a lot, a lot of vapor potentially. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think that's a very classic old school type trade. And obviously, if you structure the right, right way, your, your downside is fairly, fairly capped. Right, like you know, if if US ten years hitting three percent, even if you're outright short, like you know, what's the worst that you know our, our JGB is going to suddenly go negative? Um, it's probably fairly unlikely. No, no, absolutely right. But you know, what I find interesting about this is, and we've seen this in Australia, obviously, where they they abandoned the peg on the two year a few months ago, and we saw what happened there. The volatility of that exploded. So I'm just curious as to how that marks a, a shift in market sentiment that. The short JGB trade was essentially a bet on a return to economic fundamentals and sensible pricing of assets, right? But what we're talking about now and the Australian RBA capitulation is kind of the canary in the coal mine, perhaps, is we're starting to see it makes sense to bet against central banks being able to deliver on policy promises, which for me is, is a huge shift in mindset for markets. And when I think about that, as you've written about it, talking about, you know, the BOJ doing a U-turn, abandoning their yield curve control. It makes perfect sense to me. But this feels like the first time it 
feels appropriate to take on the central banks, even at the margin like this. Do you think we've reached a point where that shift happens? And if so, what does that portend for markets taking on central banks at this point? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a, it's a wider sign of kind of the structural shift that we're moving towards a, a decade of inflation, right? I think that that's the real, that's probably the bigger theme here where, you know, various factors have come together to help central banks you know, have this mystical magic aura about them, you know, the ability to, you know, keep policy loose without inflation because of things like China, because of things like the deflation in, you know, durable goods that China facilitated. And a lot of these factors, well, you know, obviously globalization supply chains, just in time, you know, just in time supply chains as well. And I mean, all these factors going to reverse, right? If you look at China's five-year plans, you know, China doesn't want to be flooding global markets for their goods anymore, right? They want to be rationalizing supply. So that's gone. Clearly, just in time, can't survive a pandemic. Everyone's shifting back. Um, you know, we, we've seen monetary fiscal policy coordination a lot more. You know, I think we previously talked about Yorker, um, kind of the the original Yorker control, right, in the 1940s with with the Fed and the Treasury in the U.S. So, you know, I think that there's plenty of signs that we are getting a shift, and you even see in kind of you know the increasing noise around unionization uh, of labor markets and stuff. So, I think you know if, this may not be an immediate tomorrow or next week thing, but clearly the, the regime we're living has, has shifted, right? You know, I, I think, you know, Russell Napier articulates this extremely well, you know, and he's someone that famously shifted from a kind of deflationary mindset to inflation. So, you know, I think that's probably the wider context where central banks know that their inherent policy trade-off doesn't work anymore, so you have to pick, um, right? So, you know, it was probably the case that the emperor always, the emperor kind of, this is emperor's new clothes, right? They, they, never, they never really had a clothes before because the, the environment allowed them to have the aura. And now, now the environment shifts to the basic trade-offs between and kind of policy remains, right? Yeah, I think it's a great point. And now, just going back to a couple of things you mentioned back there, you touched on the commodity super cycle and you also touched on the fact that you guys were cautious coming into this year, which was obviously incredibly prescient. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about the warning signs you saw coming into this year that made you cautious and how they've shifted over time and where you kind of stand in relation to coming into the year now. And then we'll, and then we'll get into this commodity super cycle, which I know is something you guys have spoken about a lot. I see. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the framing should be that in terms of how our data and tools work and how we think, we think along essentially three time horizons, right? One is you have the tactical kind of one, two, three months ahead. And you have what we would call cyclical, which is six to 12 months ahead. And then you kind of have the longer one to three year outlook. So I think what, what the, the setup coming into this year was that the cyclical and the tactical were fairly negative, right? You know, our correction signal had gone off, uh, you know, at the end of November. Um, you know, in t- as I mentioned, excess liquidity, a lot of these cyclical fact indicators were pretty bad. But, you know, structurally, there was still a lot of reasons to be somewhat optimistic coming in. As I said, you know, the commodity super cycle backdrop, um, the fact that you had so much consumer excess savings. You know, that we had this, you know, huge inventory rebuild cycle, you know, the, the ball effect, right? You kind of have, you know, people needing to accumulate inventories because the, they move away from just in time production because they need to move away from China supply chains, all these things. So you kind of have this very awkward um, setup with kind of structurally pretty positive factors against some of the more traditionally cyclically and tactically cautious things. So that was more, I think, the setup um, com- coming in. Um, so, you know, I think the structural things haven't actually shifted too much. So if we avoid the recession, ultimately, we are, we do want to get a sense of at some point potentially buying the stick, right? But in terms of the, the cyclical and tactical things, um, I would say one big shift coming into the year that you saw in December last year was the, the change in the 
interest rate regime as it relates to equity markets. So, so basically, if you kind of break down interest rate moves by essentially growth expectations or, or policy expectations, you can then see what's really driving it. Um, so typically, if interest rates are rising, because it's mostly being driven by growth expectations, that's actually a very positive environment um, for equities, right? And, and so, you know, one way would be to look at, say, the term premium. However, if interest rates are going up, mainly because of hawkish monetary policy expectations and not as much due to growth expectations, then clearly that's a much more bearish environment for equities. So what we actually saw was that basically in December last year, and it has been true since, is that we, we are in a regime where rate rises have been predominantly driven by um, expectations for more hawkish policy. And you can see that if you just look at the fact that term premiums being flat to negative, but 10-year yields keep going higher, right? And, and obviously we see hikes getting priced in. So historically, that's been a pretty um, pretty vulnerable environment uh, for equities. You know, factors that do well, things like, you know, quality, right? Defensives, large caps, you know, profitability, those kind of things, right? And obviously the more leveraged kind of higher beta especially higher duration, these kind of sectors have typically underperformed. So, so I think that was more the context uh, kind of c- coming in, coming in, into the year. And so that still remains the context today. So again, we can see just how important everything is and how it revolves, it's revolving around the Fed right now, right? It's, it's determining the term premium regime, it's determining where liquidity is, you know, you know it, it is um, kind of driving everything at the moment. Now, we've seen, obviously, a massive humbling of the mighty tech sector, particularly uh, in, in the US. And, and some of the some of the moves by some of the names that are you know, enormous names are really quite shocking when you step back and take a look at it. You know, when, I think when you're in the middle of it all, it's tough to get a sense. But when you step back and you look at the names that have fallen, how far they've fallen, it's pretty extraordinary, actually. So when you look across that and you look at the, you know, the growth versus value argument and you put all this into your framework – you know, buy the dip seems to not just be a blanket phrase anymore. It feels mm. like you're going to need to be selective. So when you think about that buy the dip mentality, assuming we're not in a recession and we, we avoid one, how do you kind of recategorize what buy the dip means? Yeah, that's actually a fantastic point. Because um, I think the traditional buy the dip over the past 10 years has essentially been market down, Fed put's going to kick in soon. So we'll buy, right? And, and clearly the big difference is there is no Fed put. Or there's no practical Fed put in terms of where the strike is. So I think that that's the big concern about, you know, if you just generically buy S&P, how big, a, how much juice you're going to get. Um, what I would frame is, I think there's specific sectors and regions that, you know, we highlighted the themes that we still think are potentially very interesting. Obviously, we're still long energy, despite everything, because, you know, the valuation is still reasonable. U.S. home build is another good one that's been, you know, destroyed as well with the kind of um, increasing rates. Where you know once you start trading on low, low single-digit PEs and you don't and you avoid a recession, then typically building permits aren't going to collapse. Then they probably then then you know there's probably a lot of um, opportunities for a rebound. Um, so I think yeah, it's about still dialing down probably the um, the, the kind of outright durational liquidity exposure and right? focusing a bit more on the sectors that are potentially going to still demonstrate good earnings. I think again, if we link it back to the pandemic one-offs. The, the, the potentially the real big difference this time around is in terms in terms of the industrial cycle, what we're seeing is that we've had a fairly elongated industrial peak. And with the ongoing kind of supply chain disruptions and the, the kind of um all the shifts, structural shifts away from just in time, you, you're seeing that you know durable goods new orders and these things, you know, capital goods orders in the US at least have actually been pretty good and they, you know, and and they're kind of carrying on. Whereas normally you would have expected that to be a fairly short-lived phenomenon, right? Typically out of the 
2020 recession, typically you build, rebuild for a year and we're good. And now by now we're kind of almost two years in, right? And it's still kind of reasonably, you know, still at a pretty reasonable level. So, you know, that suggests to me that with the industrial peak potentially staying a bit more elongated, it still kind of makes sense to tilt towards some of the more um, kind of commodity energy linked um, kind of sectors, right? Or, or the, you know, durables and, and those kind of sectors, right? Things linked to the CapEx cycle because, and, and, you know, things linked to real physical goods, right? Real assets and so forth. So I think that's still probably, you know, things that make most sense, right? If we, again, if we go back to the, our whole kind of tactical, cyclical, structural, those are the things that structurally make the most sense. So even if you buy the dip, you probably want to be aligned. Whereas the concern with something like um, tech and software and so forth is that on our kind of capital cycle framework, again, that's so, you know, this is the, the, the things that um, Ed Chancellor originally did, right? He wrote the book Capital Returns based on the Marathon Asset Management kind of work. So really tracking kind of capital flow between industries, where's the investment gone and, where, you know, what, which industries are hated and loved. And, and typically on our framework, we've tried to quantify it and it actually gives pretty good forward Back-tested uh, performance in terms of the next three years, right? So, so, so basically, the the short, the longish. Sorry, that was a very long-winded way of essentially saying, from a longer capital cycle point of view, sectors like tech, like software, like internet, they're still very capital abundant, right? They should still be set for underperformance because there's been so much money that's gone into it, and you will typically have a washout process because obviously, as these things deflate, you know, every, you know. Facebook's ad dollars start coming down, right? Because all the startups used to buy ads on Facebook. And so, you know, once startups start laying off workers, right? And obviously, you know, this is kind of making a lot of buzz on social media right now. So, you know, you probably need to give it a chance to deflate. So I don't think it's a blanket, you know, this is a, this is it moment. We still probably prefer some of the, the areas that are super hated, right? Like, the, like, you know, when we were originally doing the capital uh, cycle work, which led to the commodity super cycle, I just remember you couldn't find anybody who was even a commodity investor anymore. Right. Like everybody, like everybody is shut down. And and turns out that's a pretty good contrarian sign. You know, one of our, our really a country we're super obsessed with right now is Brazil because we feel like it's similar. Like you're getting to a point where we know very few LATAM specialists or funds that are still going. Um, so it feels like these are the structural setups that, that you know, if we are going to buy the deal and we avoid recession and things go turn good, these are the areas that potentially have, have like a multi year period of outperformance. Ahead. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating. You've mentioned this commodity super cycle a couple of times. And I know, again, this is something that you guys have been talking about for longer than many who've kind of jumped on this bandwagon lately. So just describe what the commodity super cycle is within the variant perception kind of universe, how you look at it, how you think about it, and where you think we are in the in the process. Um, yeah, sure. So it's essentially a capital cycle argument, right? Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned the capital cycle a few times before, but essentially what we saw was a very extended period where commodity producers, in, partic- in particular in some of the more dirty commodities, have gone for years without spending much capex, gone for years depreciating down their assets, gone for years with minimal exploration, right, with all the ESG constraints and so forth. That's kind of constrained their ability to produce and just run down their assets. So when and then COVID was the, the shock on top of all that to truly kind of you know force home you know, the, the supply disruption. So you essentially have a, a situation where the supply side is extremely constrained and typically it takes a long time to get things ramped back up, right? So if you talk conventional oil and oil wells and stuff, you know, it's, it's, we're talking about many years, right? Obviously for shale, if you've already drilled it, it's, it might be a bit quicker. But again, you you know, com- shale companies are struggling to get the financing to kind of, you know, really boost production. So essentially it's a story about very, very constrained supply side 
at the same time as kind of a a, a normalization and then a but of of demand right out of COVID. So you kind of have that interplay. And the reason these things matter is because we know commodities obviously incredibly inelastic, both on the demand and supply side. If you need it, you need it, right? And it's limited in supply. So as a result of that, even small mismatches between demand and supply in commodities can cause outsized price moves. So what we've been seeing is that we're having a persistent mismatch between demand for various commodities and supply, where it's just basically, you know, the supply response has been very weak. So, so that was kind of the, the um, whole commodity supermarket thesis. And obviously, we can track this by tracking all global commodity companies, aggregating data on production, aggregating data on capex, aggregating data on kind of asset base and, and, and the like, right? Aggregating data on you know, marginal ROIC and things like that to get a sense of, are they putting enough money into the ground to increase supply and get a supply response? And again, so far, it seems like most commodity companies are happy to buy back shares. They're not really, you know, they're all too scarred from, the past decade, you know, the, the post kind of 2013-14 China boom to really want to commit, right? No, nobody's sure this is going to last. So, you know, in, in some of the kind of less, the, the, some of the areas less affected by ESG, you are seeing more of a supply response, but certainly for, you know, some kind of energy and some of the fossil fuel and dirty stuff, like, you know, it, it's been pretty minimal. So, you know, I, I still think that that's pretty valid. Um, you know, that's still probably, you know, got a, got a decent amount to run, right? Now, obviously, I do, do, things are probably not going to move in a straight line. So, you know, if we do get kind of a China normalization, you know, China, obviously we know China slowing down, US slowing down. Maybe there, there'll be some kind of sideways movement. You know, we even saw that in the 04 kind of quantity super cycle where there was a few periods when it traded sideways, extremely volatile. Um, but I think that ultimately the picture remains that if if producers aren't willing to put sink money into the ground, you know, shovels and dig stuff up and then transport it around. At the same time, what's happening in the world is that you're disrupting supply chains, disrupting trade flows, um, to, to, so that you're further increasing kind of the cost of getting these commodities out of the ground. And, and then on top of that, the world suddenly realized, hey, we need a lot more of everything because the globalized just-in-time world we lived in is no longer true. So we, we better all have some resilience in, t- in terms of corporate balance sheets, right? The US will need their own semi-production facilities, right? Like, you know, there's, there's just like a myriad of these examples. So, yeah, I think the ingredients are still there. Certainly, we would never want to um, lean against that too hard. Um, and so, yeah, it, you know, if, if there's some kind of growth scare shock or things like that, that would probably be a good chance to buy, buy into it. I think, you know, you, we, we talk about commodities, and as I said, there's, there's an awful lot of people now looking at a space which has been, A, so unloved for such a long period of time, and B, has had such a massive amount of underinvestment in it for a really long period of time now. And you talked about Brazil there. So just flesh that out for me if you can. Brazil, I think you guys were looking at Brazilian bonds, but just walk me through how you think about Brazil in this context, what you look for, and how you kind of structure something around Brazil. Uh, yeah, sure. So I think, again, going back to that time horizon of tactical, cyclical, structural. So I think structurally, we know EM and Latam assets have been hated. They've been cheap for a while. We know obviously uh, Brazil is a big um, commodity exporter, um, right? And obviously, with the whole Ukraine situation, suddenly food exports are suddenly also suddenly incredibly in demand. So I think in terms of terms of trade and these more structural things in Brazil, um, you know, it's a pretty good setup. The main structural concern remains around debt, debt dynamics because that's something people have been concerned about for a long time. Um, but it, you know, broadly, we think you know, basically structurally, assets are cheap. You know, terms of trade are good. It's aligned with kind of longer term themes. Cyclically is where the challenge is because Brazil is essentially, you know, still in a recession. 
right? Um, you know, that central banks, like I mentioned earlier, most EM central banks have had to hike interest rates a lot since 2021 because of how high inflation is. Now, the nice thing about Brazil is that the real has actually been um, surprisingly strong this year. So you actually have quite a big buffer against um, kind of the, the general rising global food price and inflation and so forth. So, you know, we think we're potentially nearing the end of um, nearing the end of the hiking cycle. And so, you know, from that point of view, you know, we're not quite ready to see a Brazil reflation cycle yet because you need them to cut, but it's a pretty good time to think about bonds. Um, you know, again, if you think about base case, the ideal time to buy bonds is usually when real yields are high, nominal yields are high, but the economy is basically tanking, right? Because that's the perfect setup for central banks to start easing at some point and, and you kind of, kind of get you potentially even realize equity like returns by, by going long bonds because you got obviously you get the duration you get the you get the carry and you get and you get the kind of capital appreciation so you know that that's probably where we are in brazil right now where we think brazilian bonds here just given how high yields are it's it's very very attractive as a long um we're, we're probably not quite red at the point of all in on brazilian equities um yet because ideally for equities you you also want to see the business cycle kind of shift a little bit so I think equity is one where tactically our, our trading signal is actually still fairly bullish, but the cyclical business cycle in Brazil is still holding us back a bit. Um, so, so I think that's kind of where we are right now. Bonds probably make the most sense right now. Yeah, I, I have to ask you, you, you guys long in, in Brazilian real, or are you hedging the currency there? Um, I think it's okay to just not, not hedge it and just take the local. Okay. For sure. so, so given that, let's talk about the dollar for a minute, because this is, again, something that has caught an awful lot of people by surprise in terms of just how strong it's been and how long that strength has persisted. And there's so much that hinges on what the dollar does from here. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand this? Do you, th do you think it goes, does it go higher? Does it just stay strong or does it, does it ultimately roll over? Yeah, so I think the dollar is interesting. I think certainly in the past month, we've been caught off guard as well. I think we turned more neutral on the dollar um, sometime in April. I can't remember the exact, I think end of March, beginning of April. So I think the, 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 we saw the contrarian kind of dollar rally did make sense um, coming into the kind of a March Fed hikes and some of the kind of narratives around, um, you know, China was in a recession at the time. But I think what's happened since then, the, 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 the surge has definitely caught, caught us off guard a little bit. Um, I think that's somewhat related to the fact that the narrative on Europe and China remain very bad. So you don't get the reflation in China and then Europe's obviously going to is going to go to recession unless something major happens, right? They're just basically running out of energy. Um, so I think that's shifted the narrative in terms of the U.S. economy outperforming. Um, you know, our, our framework for the dollar is kind of still the dollar smile that um, I think Stephen Jen originally popularized when he was a Morgan Stanley. So this idea that the dollar outperforms in kind of the two tails, right? When the U.S. is in recession, the dollar outperforms due to safe haven flows, or when the U.S. economy is doing better than everyone else, it, it kind of sucks global investment flows back in because the U.S. is the best place to be. So the only scenario in which the dollar tends to be weak is when the rest of the world is outperforming the U.S. in terms of the relative economic performance. And so I think for us to get that dollar shift back and for, for the kind of flows to get away from the U.S., you do need to see a pickup in the rest of the world. Coming into the year, I think there was actually a reasonable chance of that happening because China was making more noises about reflation, right? You know, five and a half GDP target and, and these kind of things. But obviously... As we, as we see today, given zero COVID, that just seems, you know, zero COVID supremacy essentially means they're not going to do that, right? And obviously, the war in Europe has, um, I think, really woken up people up to basically how much Europeans are willing to sacrifice in terms of short-term economic costs to potentially um, do what they think is right long-term, right? 
in terms of standing up to Russia. So I think a lot of these factors are really shifting the calculus on whether the rest of the world can outperform. Um, so I think that that's, that's where the shift has been. So until that narrative changes, you probably won't get um, the, the kind of reversal in the dollar. You know, you, you touched on China a couple of times there, and um, we've seen an awful lot of talk in recent weeks and months about the Chinese economy, about the Chinese COVID policies, about the infrastructure, about the port slowdowns, all that kind of stuff, but very little has been said really about the yuan and the move we've seen in the yuan uh, on the back of most likely the, the yen weakness or Chinese risk assets, really. I mean, it, it seems to be that, that people have largely forgotten those now because there's so much happening in, in developed market equities. What's your current take on on China from a, from a risk asset point of view as opposed to an economic point of view? So I, I do think at some point, China will be a great buy. And it, it could even be as early as the second half of this year. So I think the challenge has been that valuations have been probably quite compelling for a while. But obviously, we know that share prices keep falling. And the most of our lead indicators for China are still very bad. So Chinese liquidity, China growth, they, they've generally just formed the L shape, right? So it's not getting worse, but you, you're not seeing the kind of rebound you've seen all the previous China reflation, right? You know, we saw in, that we saw in 16, that we saw in 20. Typically, when China eases, you're going to see it, right? In the kind of you know non-bank financial asset balance sheets, you're going to see it in the M1, you're going to see it in total social finance, you're going to see it everywhere. And there's just none of that this time around, even despite all the rhetoric. So I think that's the challenge. Without that cyclical um, upturn, who knows how, how much it falls. So I think my mindset is a little bit, at some point, you definitely want to buy. You can probably afford to wait for the LEIs to really inflect higher and chase it. Because even if you buy it 30% off the lows, right, it's still going to be very cheap. And then at that point, you can be fairly sure that um, you know that the Chinese policy cycle is genuinely shifted, and they're genuinely trying to do something about growth, and it's not just about zero COVID anymore. So I, I would say that's probably the, the, the default. Um, I wouldn't want to be kind of keep 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 buying as it falls kind of mindset here. I think you know I've tried to frame it as is you know it's kind of like the how marketing about maybe it's a time to buy, but it's certainly not the time to buy, right? So I think that that's the the mindset. The, the, yeah. the real risk, and the, the really interesting to me is just how unbelievably bearish people I know on, on, on the mainland are, like to, to a degree that I, I just never saw possible, basically. So, and I think that's obviously a function of, you know, imagine if you are locked down for five weeks, and this is, we're talking China-style lockdown, right? This isn't, you know, what we, we express here. Um, I, I can see probably that, how that affects people's mindset. So. Uh, yeah, I just don't know how sentiment can potentially how how sentiment get any worse, really. So you know, that's you know, it may the contrary in me thinks we want to do something about it, but again, without the LEIs, it's tough, I think, to to to, to get in, and and certainly the the negative headline risk remains, right? If you look at Xi's communication, like any time there's any kind of hint of hope from his lieutenants or from kind of the you know the 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 kind of you know other sectors of China, the main messaging has, has, has basically crushed hope, right? Even recently, with all the doubt about this, you know, zero COVID is unsustainable in Shanghai, it's not working. The directive that came out was essentially, you know, zero COVID is working. It's the only solution. Anyone who doubts this is, uh, you know, you, you, you've been warned, right? So I, I think, um, yeah, um, you know, in my mind, it's just a sequencing issue. So, you know, if they get control of, of the situation in Shanghai, it might give them a little, slightly more room to think about how they do 
manage zero COVID China style going forwards. If we get some positive news on China vaccines, right? Obviously, China's mRNA vaccine is not going so well. Um, but you know, there's more reports now. Even if you get a third dose of the Sinovac or you get three doses of it, it's just as good given protection. So I think that is an attempt to kind of move the population further along to, towards herd immunity, which is a necessary condition to then ease, right? Like, well, what's really interesting is you just have an inherent contradiction in the messaging. Because on the one hand, they're like, we're fully committed to four-year, 5.5% GDP target, right? And she's also talked about how we have to be US GDP because um, in 21, China lagged, right? So you have these messaging and yeah, you do zero COVID, so you know, the easing doesn't work. So the, the positive take could be if they get control, they're going to do a lot of easing in the second half, right? In which case, that would be very bullish. Or the other, other take is that, you know, COVID supremacy reigns supreme and she's just kind of talking about it for now, right? It's, it's not a priority for him. So, you know, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see. You know, one thing before we wrap up, I'm curious about, and that's the housing market and the home builders. You know, like you, I've, I think the home builders look like tremendous value down here, but we haven't seen the housing cycle roll over. Now, the US is in much better shape than it has been, certainly than it was back in 2006, seven when we went into the global financial crisis. But you look around the rest of the world and there are housing bubbles that beggar belief in in Australia and Canada and New Zealand and to some extent the UK. How do you kind of put the global housing market into perspective? Because it, it, it does seem bifurcated right now. Uh, to be honest, I haven't actually thought too hard about that question. Um, I think I, I view it more as home builders, more of a pass-through business. So they get to ride the structural kind of tailwind without necessarily and try and preserve their margins and benefit from kind of the increasing volumes, right? Rather than be specifically directly linked to um, house prices. So if you look at home builders, the earnings are generally most correlated to building permits outright. Um, so I think the thesis here is that we've had such a long period of underbuilding in the US in terms of housing starts and building permits as a percentage of the housing stock that you know there's scope for, for that to really pick up. Um, so I think that that's, that's the... the the kind of core thesis. Obviously, we know U.S. demographics a bit better. I imagine you're talking about, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, right? Basically, like the Asia markets, all the kind of, you know, all the all the markets propped up by China, Chinese buyers before, right? In terms of, you know, Canada, Australia, maybe even London. Yeah, I think those those I'm less sure about because, yeah, the, the demographics probably not as favorable. I think in, for the U.S. at least, it's, you know, it, it still looks pretty reasonable um, in my mind. Um, you know, we, we've gone for so long without building as many houses because of the legacy of 0708. And, you know, the housing stock's pretty old, right? And, and we've seen also because of COVID, it's like shifts in people, where people are moving. So, you know, you know, there's obviously like a regional exposure issue, but, but the bigger picture just seems to be, you know, there's a, there's a long runway. And right now, home building order books are pretty chock full and they're just struggling to, to fill the orders due to supply chain constraints. But, you know, even in the Q1 earnings, it's, you know, I was actually pretty bearish on Q1 earnings and surprisingly they all held up pretty well. And, and if you look at the value of all the books, these things all kept going higher or, or managed to rebound, right? So yeah, I think that's again, one where the structural story is very compelling. It's just the case of will this, when will the cyclical picture align, right? You know, the cyclical picture meaning, you know, we've had the surging mortgage yields, right? And that's obviously massively hurt sentiment, but you know, as, as and when that peaks out, then, then maybe we'll get more scope. So we can't talk about all this stuff without touching on geopolitics because it's a component of the decision-making process now that we'd all like to abdicate responsibility for, we'd all like to delegate to somebody else, but we have to now deal with it 
every day and every decision we make. But when you look across the geopolitical landscape, which inputs in that are you either most worried about or you think people are either overly concerned about or not concerned enough? Um, I mean, to be honest, I don't think we're going to bill ourselves as geopolitical experts. No, no, no. Um, I know, no, absolutely right. And I think that's really the point of my question. So even you guys who are, who are so mm-hmm. technical in nature, this is something that you have to make allowances for these. So I'm just curious as to how you guys think I about see. it, how you do that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's fair enough. I think, you know, the most obvious linkages is um, kind of the inflationary aspects. You know, I think I touched on before the fact that when you have US and China being in a genuine kind of... Um, you know, John Mearsheimer style real polity competition um, that will necessitate a huge rebuild of kind of supply chains, manuf- manufacturing chains, everything, right? And you're going to have a lot of kind of hoarding behavior. You know, if you look at China's volume of commodity imports, they've been hoarding everything for a while, right? Um, so I, I think that's the kind of big shift where as a result of more, more competition, it just, it just forces everyone to be less efficient in terms of supply chain. So that, that's pretty inflationary. And on top of that, when you have the imperative of geopolitical competition, again, governments will become kind of buyers of last resort for a lot of things, right? And then they'll be fairly price insensitive. Um, so I think that's the one thing that that has also that's also a component into our um, kind of um, uh, com- kind of commodity super cycle thesis. Um, other other than that, I think something that does help guide me a little bit on the political landscape, I think, is um, Will Durant, who wrote Lessons of, Lessons of History, um, which is this idea of you know, you go from conflict to cooperation and conflict, right? And, you know, arguably in the, basically after World War II, right, with the peak of, uh, as the year four, the Berlin Wall, that was just a period of intensifying kind of cooperation. And then with the GFC, you kind of move into kind of, you know, a, a long period of conflict and you see everywhere in terms of rise of nationalism, right? It's not even about left or right anymore and in, in terms of the, the elections. Um so, you know, I think that's something that's pretty helpful as a guide. But again, the implication is that we're in a pretty inflationary environment. Um, the other one is, uh, I thought was very helpful for the context, is um, a book by Eric Hoffer called True Believer, where, again, it's talking about cycles of populism. So, you know, I think that's the, the dominant theme of our time today, where populism is going to be an uh, increasing political force. And but again, ultimately, that's inflationary, right? So I think when you put a lot of these things together, you know, I, you know, I don't think we're in the 70s yet, but I think some of the, the implications for how corporates behave and how economic actors will behave, I think the precedent's already, you're starting to see it, right? Like people are going to be hoarding a lot more, both at the consumer level, the company level, and given the just the sheer shock of supply chain issues, you're going to probably see a lot more vertical integration, right? You know, the more M&A pickup, they're all going to roll things up to make sure they have supply. And that's basically what you saw in the 70s. So you so you you have a period of hoarding. Everybody um, aggregates conglomerates up, and then once inflation bugbears eventually kill ten years later in the eighties, all the corporators come in, you know, buy up all the companies, chop it all up, and and sell them all off again, and you get the kind of great big cycle. So it feels like a lot of these are um, some of the kind of implications that ultimately stem from the fact that we're going to be living in a more inflationary world. Tian, it's been a fascinating conversation as always. I really really appreciate you taking the time to do this. But before we close, just let people know how they can follow you guys find out more about vp and what you guys do because it's uh it's just top draw stuff yeah so um obviously our website is variantperception.com you know we have a blog there um we're on twitter um generally we're targeted at institutional investors um so you know if you're interested in kind of you know you having us as a resource in terms of doing custom work custom chart books reading our reports you know you know the, the website is where you go really 
Fantastic. And uh, so you get a, a, a tremendous endorsement from me because uh, everything I've seen come out of you guys has been has been first rate. So listen, my regards to everybody there. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, hopefully we can do this again soon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. And I look forward to connecting again soon. Thanks, Tiana. I really appreciate it. Well, there you go. Fascinating stuff as always. The willingness of variant perception and their independent voices to contemplate taking on the Bank of Japan and shorting JGPs is, for me, a sea change. And I think it's an extremely important one. Having the rigid overlapping frameworks that they do gives Tian and the team there a remarkably consistent framework through which they can evaluate markets and find turning points. And I have to say, the calls that their proprietary indicators have triggered have been absolutely excellent over the last few years, particularly coming into 2022. That's all from me for another edition. It's been a delight to have you with me. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you again soon. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.